Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Hi, welcome to this month's episode. For our interview today, we have Dr. Caroline King, who's a research fellow at the Department of Nursing and Community Health at Glasgow Caledonian University. She came to give a seminar at the UAC on the 5th of April in 2019, and Ava got a chance to interview her the same day. So we're really excited and hope you enjoy this interview as well. Hi, welcome, uh, Dr. Kin. We are really happy to have you here with us at the AMR studio. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Well, thank you so much for inviting me here um, to the AMR studio here in Uppsala. It's a great pleasure to be here. So I'm Dr. Caroline King and I am an academic researcher and I'm based in Glasgow in Scotland at Glasgow Caledonian University. So could you explain to us briefly a little bit in which field are you working on right now and a little bit of the path that took you there? Yeah, of course, I'd love to. So in terms of the field that I'm working in, I'm working in antimicrobial resistance research, looking at antimicrobial resistance and also antimicrobial stewardship using approaches from the social sciences, from the arts, from the humanities. And what I'm doing through a sort of range of different projects and initiatives is using these approaches to really interrogate antimicrobial resistance from a social science perspective. So just to give an example, some of the, the different projects that we're involved in, they're really varied and you know I love that aspect of my job that they are so varied. So one project has been looking at antimicrobial resistance, screening for antimicrobial resistance, resistant organisms in hospitals and looking at the acceptability in the general public of screening programs. That's been a really interesting study using mixed methods. And another study we've been working on has been using behavioural approaches to think about how different groups who have different stakeholders around antimicrobial resistance might be able to engage with the problem, if you like, in terms of stewardship practices. So a recent study that I've been working on has been with vets and farmers so that's been really interesting and a little bit different for me because I come from a, a health and a, a nursing background and then the key project that I'm working on at the moment is a project called the Ripen Project so that's a really exciting project for me and that really brings together lots of my interests around about the arts humanities and social sciences and that project is a two-year project funded by the AHRC so it's the Arts and Humanities Research Council through which we've been working with nurses to really sort of look from a sort of a grassroots sort of approach to looking at antimicrobial stewardship so working with them in, in quite a lot of detail in terms of thinking about how they're conceptualizing antimicrobial resistance and how that impacts on them in their daily lives and their daily work so so that's been a great project this is the project that you are going to present for us yeah. here at the UEC right because Caroline you are here because you are going to give a talk in our seminar series and we were very excited to bring somebody that could actually is working in intertwining this social aspect but also with the clinics and with the more let's say medical aspect of the project Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for me, that's just such an interesting aspect of this area of research, you know, is how you bring these different sort of disciplines and different aspects together. And I think this is a really nice example of that. And I think in all the projects that I work on, I'm always really interested in, you know, how can we use these different approaches and different methods to think about the problem and bring it back towards a sort of clinical base or a clinical frame, if you like. So I'm always really interested in sort of opening up that interdisciplinary space in order to answer some of the important clinical questions 
that we're facing because of antimicrobial resistance. So what is your background? Is it more on the social sciences or is it more in the clinical one? Yeah, that's um, a good question. So my background and expertise is in nursing. So I graduated as a nurse back in 93. And I've always been interested in the sort of public health aspects of nursing. So from quite early on, I was quite interested in looking at things like health and social inequalities and some of the sort of broader sort of determinants and drivers around about health. So I guess when now that I've come to look to be studying antimicrobial resistance from a social science perspective, that's all kind of playing out quite nicely in terms of being able to think about it in all its different dimensions. So yeah, so I started off in nursing and worked in a clinical context originally and then moved into research. So from about 2000, I've been working in research and went on to do my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. And that was a great opportunity for me. So my PhD was actually about child health surveillance. So it was about a very different topic from antimicrobial resistance. But what my PhD provided me with was a really sort of open scholarship. So an opportunity to really interrogate a problem from lots of different angles using lots of different methods and approaches. I worked with Professor Sarah Cunningham Burley and she was an amazing mentor in terms of allowing that open and creative and intellectual space to really think about a problem. So I absolutely loved that. And I came across a quotation recently, which I'll hopefully recall. It's um, from Tim Ingold. He's a social anthropologist based at the University of Aberdeen. And he talks about living as a buccaneer on the high seas of scholarship, reading any ships that happen to cross my bows for the riches that they might contain. So I love that because, you know, for me, that's really what being an academic is about, about having that creative and intellectual space to use lots of different methods and approaches to study what are some of the most complex problems of our times, really. And antimicrobial resistance, of course, is one of those. Yes, but your PhD wasn't related to antimicrobial resistance. How did you get into the field of antimicrobial resistance? So after my PhD, I... I moved to Glasgow to work. So my PhD was in Edinburgh on the east coast of Scotland and I moved to the west coast of Scotland. And I took up a post at Glasgow Caledonia University, which um, again was actually more closely related to my PhD. So that was looking at evaluating an intervention in neonatal care. So it was still in the child health side of things. And then I moved, it was really an issue of being a researcher and all the issues that there are around about short-term contracts and (laughs) um, all these issues that we, we have to face. I moved at the end of that project into the project that I talked about initially, which was to do with hospital screening for antimicrobial resistant organisms, the mixed methods study. And from there, so I moved into that project with the SHIP research group, which is the Safeguarding Health Through Infection Prevention Research Group based at GCU. And from there, I've just kind of found quite a nice home, if you like. So I feel very at home there with that research group. They're an interdisciplinary research group. So we have health economists, we have psychologists, we have epidemiologists, we have a whole range of different people working on research to with infection prevention control and also antimicrobial resistance and it feels very sort of vibrant team with lots of opportunities to do different things so we do you know a lot of research but we also do quite a lot of public engagement work as well so mm-hmm. so that's a really nice um, additional element we've done quite a lot of work with the Glasgow Science Festival over the last two or three years around about public engagement so a little bit similar to the work that you're doing here around about the AMR studio and you know I think that's great for really kind of helping us to think out of the box so I think the more people you speak to and the more people you engage with around about the work that you're doing and the research that you're doing, the more meaningful it becomes. Yeah. So yeah, so I kind of took a sidestep and found myself in a, a very nice home. <laughs> we normally wonder, the people we interview, we have from different disciplines and working in many different projects related to EMR, how do they experience and see the multidisciplinarity of this problem? Because as we said, mm. and we always talk about, this is not just a biological problem, it's not only an economical problem, it's not only a societal problem, it's like all 
together. But I take that you actually are already working in this very multidisciplinary setting. So for you, it's something that you live day to day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That these people need to come together and they need to talk to each other and they need to understand each other's perspectives and each other's parts of the issue. Yeah, yeah. So for you, it's something that is basically essential and that you live with. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think, um, you know, like you say, there's just so many different elements to the problem. You know, it's a biological problem and then it's also a social problem and there's lots of dimensions to that social nature of the problem. I think it was Lippmann in 2014 talked about it being a super wicked problem. And I love that term. So, you know, essentially it talks about the complexity of the problem and how it needs to really have an interdisciplinary approach in order to be able to address it or, you know, to create the conditions in which we can kind of move forward, really. So I love that interdisciplinarity of the field. And I mean, I've come across researchers really from pretty much every field who are involved in AMR research. So social geographers, people from science and technology studies, medical sociologists, biologists, there's a whole range of different people who are engaged in the field. So it makes it a very, very vibrant field. It comes with its challenges, of course. So Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Like, yeah. have you seen it also change over time? The approach to this multidisciplinary aspect has it changed yeah. under your point of view? And have some challenges been addressed over time? Or more challenges have arisen, you know? Yeah, or... yeah. So, you know, I think the challenges, of course, are very similar, you know, in relation to whatever topic you're studying, I think, in terms of working interdisciplinary, we all have our different theories and our different concepts and our different languages. As well, languages, right? yeah, absolutely different ways of working. But, you know, I think something which helps to address that is through conversations like we're having right now. So, you know, I think it's just really valuable to um, have these conversations, whether it's through um, the AMR studio or through seminar series or, you know, there's so many different conferences, so many different spaces that we can do that. Another th- way that we address it, of course, is through working very directly on projects together. So the RIPEN study, which I'm talking about this afternoon at the seminar, is a very interdisciplinary project. So in that project, we're working with designers and we're working with historians. And, you know, that's that's lovely in terms of some of the very nuanced and detailed conversations that, that you can have. So it starts to break down, I think, some of the, the borders and the sort of lines between different disciplines quite nicely. In terms of you, you mentioned about how the field is developing. So I think something that I've noticed really in the relatively short time that I've been working in the field is that you know, just the amount of thinking and research which is which is coming out so I think there's been a lot of or I know there has been a lot of research monies put into this field and with that we are getting quite sort of magnificent outputs really and you know I find myself recently I was reading the work by Stephen Hinchliffe he's a social geographer at University of Exeter and he works in aquaculture so it's a very different area again it's sort mm. of a section of agriculture and it's Southeast Asia that he works in so there's lots of differences to his work but the core concepts that he's coming up with I find really applicable to the field that I'm working in so for example he talks about moving from borderlines to borderlands and I just love that as a sort of conceptual way of thinking and find that I can actually start to use those concepts when I'm thinking about things like infection and control within hospitals all of a sudden you start to think about the boundaries and the borders which are put in place in order to manage antimicrobial resistance and then thinking about well how could that actually look differently if we were actually to think about borderlands in terms of actually sort of building the sort of resilience and the resource around antimicrobial resistance. So yeah, so I think it's kind of just fascinating all the sort of different disciplines and the different sort of concepts and ways of thinking that are emerging through the study of antimicrobial resistance. I have a somewhat more practical questions perhaps. Since your team and the, the group you work at seems to be like truly so multidisciplinary, my question is when you come up with results of your studies, of your observations and your what you are looking for, where 
where does practically this body of knowledge gets published and what type of audience you guys are trying to target with this result? Yeah, so that's a real challenge, I think, you know, particularly, as you say, if it's interdisciplinary research. I think we kind of go with the approach of trying to think about who we want our audience to be. Mm-hmm. So just to give an example, recently we've completed some work which was looking at patients' experiences of hospital screening. And we kind of felt like we had some choices around where we might publish that. So we could publish it in infection prevention control journals, we could publish it in nursing journals, we could publish it in more theoretical journals. And for that one, we chose to publish it, well, it's kind of still in the process, but the journal we have chosen is a nursing journal because we felt that our audience was frontline nurses. So we wanted to publish in a journal which would get us to the readership. To that would be the readership exactly. That's what you know essentially we felt was important in terms of I guess the, the reason the impact of your results, right? Yeah, so the impact, um, you know, in terms of academic impact and then also, yeah, we want impact in terms of policy and practice. Practical, practical, practical impact, impact yeah. exactly. So yeah, so we're very much aiming for the readership where we kind of feel that we're going to have the sort of best and sort of most important impact. Because for us, one of the conversations we'll be having here at USC, USC aims to be, you know, a multidisciplinary center. We have projects that touch it up on a m- many different areas. And one of the questions that we've been getting from our PhD students is, okay, when we get results, where are we going to want to publish them? Mm. What type of journals out there that will want this perhaps more mm. multidisciplinary area? Because if you are bringing it together all these topics, you can, people that are reading only this very biological yeah, of course. Journals might not want to know about the social part of the project and the people, mm. if you publish in a social, the way you write the papers also is different, how you focus the question you're trying to answer. Mm. So I particularly find that that is perhaps one challenge within yeah, the... Yeah, and I guess though that's also where you can kind of pool your resources as a team. So, you know, some people within the team will have the expertise where they're a better place to write for the more scientific journals and other people will be better placed to write for the more social journals so you know in terms of pooling your resources different people can be writing for different journals you know with the findings from the same project if you like I think the other thing that I've noticed has happened as more research is happening around about antimicrobial resistance and there are more outputs then the journals are actually kind of changing to respond to that so we now actually have journals which are about antimicrobial resistance and and they are actually bringing in lots of different types of research last night we were talking about um, a special issue that's coming out which is focusing on antimicrobial microbial resistance as well. So journals really like that, I think, in terms of actually being able to take what is a very sort of contemporary and central problem for us and bring lots of different aspects in as together. well. So, yeah. Yeah. That's probably the way to go to yeah, I make think so. special issues that you can have different angles on a specific yeah. topic. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Also a bit related to you working with people from different disciplines together, we wonder how does your perspective on the problem or the specific topics you are studying coincides with the ideas and perspective of people working in other areas? Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, you know, I, I think when we come to think about interdisciplinarity, we sometimes think about the perhaps the more extremes of that. So perhaps, you know, uh, people working in the more sort of hard life sciences and then people working in the social sciences. But what I actually find that is even within my own field, you know, I work with colleagues and we, each of us have very different approaches and, and ways about thinking about the world. So, you know, even that can sometimes be a challenge in terms of how we're thinking and conceptualising about things. So, for example, I've done quite a lot of work recently working with colleagues from psychology.
psychology and um, behavioural science, whereas my background is much more from sociology and medical sociology. And I think, you know, we have quite different ways of kind of thinking about the world and what the focus should be. So psychologists and behavioural scientists think quite a lot in terms of the key behaviours which we might want to identify and change in order to... And target. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Whereas my background and discipline is much more thinking about the complexities of the social world and I guess, you know, thinking perhaps in a more sort of broad sort of sense in terms of the complex relationships which mesh together for any problem in any given time to become a problem in Mm -hmm. in itself. So so I'm really interested in that complexity. Whereas, you know, working with behavioural science colleagues, they're really interested in the precise behaviours. So (laughs) so sometimes we even find that, you know, we're having really interesting conversations about that and how we should focus and, you know, how we can sort of get the best outputs really. So (laughs) I think the thing that I've found over time, though, is by having an open mind to different disciplines, then you can just learn so much and take that to your own research practice. So, (laughs) So I think your own research practice just continually develops in terms of the ways of thinking, the methods you're using, the theories you're using by working in this way with different colleagues from different disciplines. Definitely there is a benefit to it and Mm. we believe so. We're going towards the end of Mm -hmm. our conversation but we would like or I'm very interested to know from your point of view what do you think is missing in AMR field or more particularly in your field of studies? What do you would like to see more of or where would you like to see the field developing into? Yeah, so an area that I would be interested or I would like to see the field developing into, you know, I think a lot of research so far has focused on thinking about AMR as a, a problem of healthcare. So a lot of the work and the kind of thinking has been focused around about thinking about healthcare settings, hospitals, community settings, but kind of secondary sort of end sort of care settings, which you know people might go to with precise illnesses, if you like. What I think would be quite nice to kind of consider is thinking about antimicrobial resistance as a problem of social and health inequality. So thinking about the political and economic conditions which essentially break bodies in the first place. So <laughs> so mean that, you know, I guess you know we're in times which of austerity where which are particularly harsh, I think, and where people who are living in deprivation experience them at their hardest. So in terms of expanding the field, I think that would be a really interesting area to go into in terms of again working with people, you know, who are living in areas where there is a high level of deprivation to really look at how they're experiencing the problem and I think that could potentially change what the responses might be as well in terms of perhaps more political and economic responses rather than some of the responses which we might get within healthcare which might be more around about things like antibiotic prescribing. So um, Yeah, because we talk here sometimes as well and by having these multidisciplinary people coming, we had an interview very interesting with somebody working anthropology uh-huh. and pointed out how the cultural and historical context of a specific place has such a huge role to play of how people relate to antibiotics mm. and antibiotic use. And this problem of access, excess, right? That we are overusing and misusing antibiotics in a lot of parts of the world, whereas these developing countries might not even have access to the basic antibiotics that could be using to solve problems of uh, infections. Yeah. So yeah. all that inequality in how the political system works, how the cultural systems are, it really plays a role on the problem. And 
we need to be very knowledgeable on every specific place what things are the key things that modify or modulate how we relate antibiotics or how people relate antibiotics. Yeah. That's very... Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, there's inequality in a global sense. And then, in actual fact, there's also very sort of local inequality as well. So in Glasgow, the city where I am based at the moment, you know, we have particular sort of dynamics which are really interesting. So over time, it's been noticed that Glasgow has what been sort of discussed or defined as um, excess mortality. So a greater mortality than you would expect for a city of the particular sort of dimensions of Glasgow. And that's recently been interrogated by colleagues at the Centre um, for Population Health in Glasgow to look at why that might be the case. And there's lots of reasons why it might be the case. But in terms of the sort of stronger reasons, they suggest that it's to do with some historical decisions which have been made in relation to populations within Glasgow. And then also the extreme inequalities which are within Glasgow, so very affluent and very poor communities and quite often side by side. So yeah, so I think in terms of actually moving forward and thinking about antimicrobial resistance in relation to social and health inequality, I feel mm. that I've got a great field site on my doorstep to do that's, that. That's mm-hmm. good. Are you planning on maybe coming yeah. up with some projects that focus on that? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's something that I've kind of got in my pipeline. So um, to watch this space that's and good. anybody that would like to collaborate in that, I would love to do that. Oh, that would be, <laughs> be great to see what results and what uh, observations yeah. are found there. Yeah, we normally try to end the conversation in a curious note and is we ask the people what do you think is more misunderstood about your field? Something that when you've come across people working in other areas they might not really grasp properly from your field or they might completely misunderstand the meaning of the concepts or related to EMR of course <laughs> if you can if you can but uh, sometimes it's just yes. Yeah I don't know if this is exactly a, an answer to your question but something I find quite interesting is when friends and family ask me about what work I do and then I find out that everything's misunderstood so so I think when you kind of very become very involved in a field then you even the fact that antimicrobial resistance is a thing you know becomes so obvious whereas you're on speaking to friends and family you know quite often they're not even particularly aware of this basic kind of concept around about antimicrobial resistance so yeah I think that it can sometimes be quite a challenge in terms of trying to describe and tell to people what your job is about (laughs) everything becomes quite complicated then so um so yeah (laughs) yeah I actually I had a conversation with somebody they were asking me also what do you work with and I said well I studied this and that when I did my PhD and now I work at a center that studies antimicrobial resistance and then the answer was like whoa so it's not a myth that bacteria can become resistant to antibiotic and I was like no definitely it's not a myth yeah <laughs> we can talk more about it if you want yeah so it's uh, it's on all of us to to keep up the conversations and to try to yeah know, I bring think the so. awareness definitely that's, yeah that's exactly right and sometimes it's actually through conversations you know with people on the train or yeah. friends and family that all of a sudden you have that light bulb moment about maybe what is actually misunderstood within your field so yeah I think the the more conversations we can have the more clarity we get around about our thinking definitely we are going to wrap up the uh, interview now is there anything that you would like to add anything that comes to your mind that you were hoping to have a chance to say now is your time anything you want to tell us no I think we've probably covered most of the bases thank you very much for having me in um, your AMR studio thank you so much for being with us thank you thank you 
Welcome back, everybody. So let's comment a little bit about this uh, very interesting and very different interview that we had. So, Jenny, can you give us a little bit your impressions about this interview? Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting interview because Dr. King's background was very different from what I was used to. I mean, her right. background in nursing and then getting into this feels very kind of stepwise and roundabout way. And we do talk about a lot of people that end up in AMR kind of by accident. But this was a little bit of a different one, especially with her strong interest in humanities and not the same kinds of humanities that we've been talking about before. Yeah, she didn't mention that much the project she presented, the seminar, which had to do a lot of, with art as yeah, well. Yeah, it was, that was very, very interesting. Interesting, like this is like really intertwining different disciplines mm-hmm. in like one overlook of yeah. the problem of AMR. And she seems to have such a diverse interest. I mean, she talks about how people perceive and how people feel in these situations. She talked about an article that's being published that we were actually going to talk about in our news section. Yeah, segment. we'll talk a little bit in the news section about yeah. this in depth and we're going to leave the links and everything because we don't tend to talk so much about qualitative studies which are also very important in AMR and Mm -hmm. specifically in the societal part of AMR so we are going to take this over in the next section. She had an interesting quote there though that we both or we all three got stuck on a bit but we also wanted to kind of explain a little more. (laughs) Yeah she actually said it both in the interview and also during the seminar Mm because I guess she feels really strongly about it. She feels very represented yeah. <laughs> in that, and actually after talking to her getting to learn her background her path and really understanding the quote then I would say yeah it's very yeah. fair <laughs> so that was the buccaneer quote that she mentioned at the beginning of the interview mm-hmm. and basically what it means is just what we call in slang riding the wave right? Yeah. right so it just means that you are open to whatever comes your way and you are open to change disciplines and you are open to apply but it's really I mean because it, it seems like it's a lot about you know taking the chances that come to you an interdisciplinary approach which is a lot of what we talk about here mm. I mean when you read where this quote was and the whole background this On author book, had yeah. in the book and it was a lot about you know changing paths and kind of just taking the next road even if it's not what you've been working on just kind of keep going and do what yeah, comes which to is you like it, this all comes in the context that the scholarly work is being traditionally very close up and yeah. like you are working in your area and this is what you're focusing in and as That's opposed it. to now <laughs> seeing the things a little bit more open and yeah be willing to see what comes your way with yeah. different eyes. Yeah, and, and Dr. King is it, a yeah. really good example of yeah, this. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And something that we work on here in, mm, the, in the center. But I did also like another thing that came up, and it's an interesting, and I think something that's not finished thing to talk about. So this of where do you publish when you're mm. working with interdisciplinary articles or things like that? How do you get them out to their target audience? Yeah. And I think this is a difficult question because... I think so too. It's pretty difficult. Yeah, I mean, and then it's also, we talked about this now, how do we search for articles now? Like, how do researchers find articles? And Ava, you mentioned that. Yeah, because uh, that came to me when I was uh, interviewing her, because I think getting to talk to people that truly work in these settings. We had, like, last episode also, Frederick Ankins, yeah. who also has a very multidisciplinary team, and now her. I see this as a main challenge as yeah. well, because you want to target the readership that is going to be interested in your work, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to find a place that is going to accept your publication that's yeah. the first step right yeah like um, you can think it fits somewhere and they won't accept it because exactly. they don't think it fits so, so now with amr what is happening is there are a lot of special issues so yeah. you have like these big journals that will make a special issue that is going to contain this amr multidisciplinary work or amr from different perspectives but you have to be sure that somebody's going to find that yeah. article and before i see um, things have changed of course with new technologies the way that scholars and the way of uh, academics to find um, the papers are the articles 
articles have changed before of course you had your journals of reference that you knew things relevant to your research were going to be published and then you mm -hmm. would get a table of contents every month which still happens in email form yeah. but I think now there's many more direct searches right yeah. like you actually go in into these these giant databases these yeah. databases like it could be Scopus it could be PubMed it could mm -hmm. be Google Scholar wherever it is and then you type in what you are looking for and we need to have that in mind in order to target the people that yeah. are going to want to read this so like how are these databases used how are things prioritized which search words are used and I think one of the things is I mean people from different backgrounds are going to use different search words for the same thing <laughs> and you want to make sure that everybody ends up where they're going so that's a kind of a different challenge from what we're talking about just how do we communicate information mm -hmm. verbally how do we communicate written things and make sure they end up in the right place is also another question mm -hmm. yeah. yeah I also thought this was interesting you tied in a little bit in the interview when you were talking to Dr. King to Dr. Delima Hutchison's interview earlier who was also an anthropologist and kind of looking at larger scale cultural aspects and, and societal aspects for AMR in different parts of the world but this was very local Dr. King was talking about just Glasgow and that she wants to do some work just in that area looking at the different groups and how people with different backgrounds and different life situations are differently affected and how they get sick in before they end up in the hospital and I think it'll be really fun to see what work she comes out with because that's a really interesting different aspect right. to it yeah because the differences do not have to be just limited to countries yeah. or regions of the world with the same culture but also we can like zoom in and get these yeah. differences like even at a local level depending on where people have been studying what type of practices they have been learning also clinical culture right in hospitals yeah. they might do things differently in one area than another area yeah. so these also will affect how we treat AMR and yeah. how we face AMR in the different aspects and especially when she brought in austerity measures I mean these are the things that a country that is doing very well with AMR situation might hit hard financial times and it might affect different populations in that country differently and it's something that I mean this is a constantly fluid thing it'll never mm. really be, be the stable it'll yeah. be the same yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so I think it'll be I really hope to see more of her work coming out the more it's just so interesting to me and to us like the more uh, I learn about AMR the more you realize that everything around on the it affects AMR in one way or yeah. another right everything like, is so complex like mm. how the culture or the economic status of different sectors of the population that's gonna affect them differently when it yeah. comes to AMR the education it's just so broad and, yeah. and so interesting at the same time yeah. so it's great that there's work being done on this on also in that part right. yeah I think with that we yeah, might be ready to wrap up to the new section yeah. and we will start the new section tidying up with the interviews and we will talk about the latest research by Dr. Carolyn Kim Welcome to the news segment for this episode. We had quite a few articles to choose from, so we had to narrow it down to a few. It's a week I'm kind of back from holidays and all these interesting things are happening. Yeah. So Hope you enjoy the ones we present. One was a no-brainer, right? Yeah. Because right now, Dr. Carolyn King got one of the projects she was working on published. And uh, this actually is a little bit different type of study that we are normally used to talk about. Yeah. So we found it very interesting for you to know about how this different science is done. So what is the paper about, Jenny? Can you tell us a little bit? So the paper is a qualitative study compared to the quantitative studies we usually talk about. So we're looking more at patient responses. And the title is Patient Exposure of Hospital Screening for Carbapenemase Producing Enterobacteriaceae, a quality 
consolidative study and in the Journal of Clinical Nursing accepted on the 21st of June 2019. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting study that was looking at uh, patient responses and interviews with patients after they had been screened positively for CBE or carbapenemase producing enterobacteriaceae in the hospital and then how they felt that this happened and if they had any thoughts or experiences that they wanted to share with the authors of the study. Yeah, so this we have to explain to our audience carbapenemase producing enterobacteriaceae. They are basically yeah. enterobacteriaceae which can be E. coli for example mm-hmm. which are normal gut microbiota yeah. uh, bacteria and when they produce carbapenemases it means that they are resistant to carbapenem antibiotics and these antibiotics are strong antibiotics that are yeah. normally used intravenously and they are used for systemic infections. Yeah. So this means that if we have an enterobacteriaceae bacteria that is resistant to it's these like uh, last line crucial antibiotics then we can have a big problem if yeah. anybody gets an infection, a bloodstream infection mm-hmm. especially with this kind of bacteria. So these screenings are done in a way to control the amount of these bacteria mm-hmm. that are in its hospitals because the majority of these colonizations actually happen because people are exposed to these resistant bugs as they call mm-hmm. it in hospital and the way to kind of manage this is to do a screening of yeah. people that are at risk so not everybody gets actually screened for this yeah. but they do a risk assessment first and then the people that are high risk they get this screening done. And the screening is to be done because colonization of these bacteria does not mean that you show any symptoms right? So exactly that's, that's the difficult yeah, part. This is not something that you can see on the patient this is just something that might increase the amount of these bacteria that are present in, a, in, in the hospital, hospital environment yeah. and then if you are colonized with it mm-hmm. and you don't know it you might undergo procedures that might increase the risk that other people can yeah. get also colonized with it and the problem here comes when people that have low immune systems we mm-hmm. talked about this before elderly patients patients in cancer care yeah. uh, young patients when Which they actually increasingly important in a hospital setting especially yeah. in a hospital setting mm-hmm. so it's, it's more like a, a preventive measure mm-hmm. I think this paper and this article was incredibly interesting because it kind of dwells more on the you know emotional side and the mm-hmm. informational side of how do patients see this how do they live this right yeah. because it's, go- it's going to happen mm-hmm. and I have to say that it was a little bit disappointing right yeah. the results mm-hmm. are the overall feeling of, of the article is very important that we know how these patients feel yeah. but we have to say that it's not very positive no it didn't seem like any of the patients had felt I mean positive maybe is the wrong word most of them left feeling like they didn't have the information they needed they felt dirtier that it was their fault so the article actually kind of separates or classifies the responses of the patients into two main yeah. buckets into two main themes one is the difficulty to understanding why CPE is yeah. right mm-hmm. and this actually this theme shows up from the early beginning which when they are decided to be screened for mm-hmm. all the way down to when they actually are discharged from the hospital yeah. and go home so the difficulty on understanding what CPE is what consequences it has and how they can deal with it is something that shows up from the very beginning to the end of the process and then the other topic where they also see that the patients have problems with or they are it's a very important in their reaction to this screening is in the responsibility side and feeling yeah. like it's their fault and feeling that they have the responsibility to avoid further transmission and even the responsibility that they actually carry so these were the two main topics that conversations with the patients could be classified in mm-hmm. and I think we should talk a little bit maybe of how can this actually be better right because yeah. over- change this overall right? is that maybe the hospital setting or how hospitals work is not in the best interest to actually deal with this type of situations no. No. because hospitals and doctors are trained or they are in settings where people have diseases and people have something that they need to be treated or cured for and in this 
these cases we're talking about something that majority of the cases it doesn't produce an, uh, a disease it yeah. doesn't produce symptoms and you have to dwell with a, another whole level of what it means to have this thing mm-hmm. right which then passes in on to more like I would say also psychology type how do you counteract all those feelings that the people might have from yeah. this mm-hmm. so doctors of course don't know how to deal with that doctors don't have the time to deal with that because no. they do have other things to do which is treating people that have mm-hmm. disease yeah. have an infection that mm-hmm. needs so I think that one part will be that now with increased prevalence of AMR mm-hmm. of resistant organisms and the more prevalence of these screenings done to have a staff on site that is specifically trained and works for this yeah. and has communication skills and has also the technical and the clinical knowledge but mm-hmm. also can support the patients emotionally and psychologically because obviously from this article what we can see is that there's a heavy emotional burden yeah. from this. Mm. And they do talk about IPC staff so infection prevention and control staff which kind of is what we're thinking about but the experiences with these specialized staff was not great. I mean in many cases they said they didn't meet the staff until maybe 24 hours after they were separated. 24 right. to 48 hours. 24 to 48 hours. So it, to me reading these experiences it felt like everything was rushed. Of course yeah. you need to act quickly but the fact that they get screened for it they are not so sure what they are screened yeah. for because the overall feeling is that they are getting it's a screen for something routine yeah. that doesn't really have much impact maybe yeah. and then they get these positive results and then on the go when they get the positive result they are actually moved from the setting they were used to yeah. to this isolation setting which implies you know the feeling that you have to be away from the yeah. rest of the people that mm. you have something that doesn't allow you to mm-hmm. be with the rest of the people and no information is done until 24 48 no. hours which you know how slow time passes when you are worried about something yeah I mean right. if you have no idea what's going on that's incredibly long time and I mean they also talk about that even when they met the staff sometimes they didn't feel like they could get their questions answered they kind of just got a pamphlet or yeah, something yeah which like is that. not enough this has no. to be a two-way communication yeah. you as a staff that is taking care of people in this setting you should be 100% sure that the patient has all the questions they have in their mind yeah. asked you need to have this feedback like are you understanding this can you repeat to me mm-hmm. what you do you think this means talk about all the measures yeah. they should take and then of course the more psychological part which is like you should not feel guilty for this yeah. you should not feel that it's your fault no exactly but it feels like that wasn't the case no it felt like there was an attempt with this IPC staff and mm. that it's maybe a step in the right direction but there's a lot of work left to be done there I mean the staff does not maybe have the training or I mean they might hopefully learn more from this yeah that's why study. these studies yeah. are done for but well that they do mention that. at some point that even though the staff should know this mm-hmm. uh, previous work done with MRSA which is methicillin resistant staphylococcus mm-hmm. aureus which is one of these main hospital acquired infections yeah. that got a lot of publicity in the media and it's that a lot of people, people know. publicly know about that a lot of the staff that were supposed to be working with patients on mm-hmm. these were severely under educated and yeah. under trained to take that task on I could imagine that with a new resistant organisms like CPEs which is recently taking attention mm-hmm. that we don't even know all the information yeah. and then these hospital staff might not know all the information so I think a lot of work needs to be put on this yeah we thought it was very interesting and also to have in mind that the cultural the political the social aspect of how a person will face this type of colonization of this type of situation it has to be taken in account you yeah, cannot just because right. depending on everything around them what they have learned how they have been exposed to other things it will make a difference of how they actually understand what, mm-hmm. what they're going through so I think this two-way communication should be the most important thing that whoever is talking to these people make sure that they have the right information yeah. make sure that 
that they have the right support. Mm-hmm. I think another important theme is that this feeling dirty, we need to work on that. I think yeah. the idea of that bugs are against us is not a theme that we should be continuing, no. especially with education from the fundamental level, so basic education. Mm-hmm. It is not that we are fighting against bugs, we are living with bugs. Yeah, yeah. living in a controlled living way. Living in a controlled way. And even if ecosystem. you do everything right, right, this still happens. It's not on you personally. And they talk about how like this is hospital-wide or like community control efforts, but they end up on the individuals when they're talking about how these patients feel dirty. They feel like it's all on them mm. as an yeah, individual. Yeah, and I, I think also the fact that the infection prevention control measures have to do with cleanliness, yeah. then that actually puts a level, yeah, you have to wash your hands, but you have to wash your hands because you might have a bacteria there that is not good, but this is not that it means that you are a dirty person, no. right? right? But exactly. these two concepts kind of like intertwine and they're together right. because yeah. the way that you prevent this infection is by washing your hands, which means if I were more clean, maybe this wouldn't happen, but mm-hmm. that's not the case. No. So it's like yeah. a little bit like trying to really make sure that the people understand this, that the, just the, the, because this. you have to wash your hands, wash, exactly. doesn't mean that the opposite is true, that you're dirty and that's why you yeah. have this thing. Mm. So exactly. Just a lot of care in how you say these things and mm. how, what measures we take. And it's easy to say from above, everybody washes their hands, well, I'll be fine. Right. But that kind of implies that... If there's a problem, it's because you're not exactly, clean enough. Right. And that is not the and case. That's the yeah. theme that we should so just really... balancing these things. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So we hope that you also like knowing about this study. Yeah. And I really, really hope to see improvement in this side. Yeah. And more of this kind of study. I think it's really important yeah, to critical, have fact. this kind of qualitative information as well, not just numbers. And also, the authors actually explained that this is a small study. So mm-hmm. they actually, these are nine patients that were able to get to talk to. But they reached out to all the positive patients with CP specific period of time, which were 100-something yeah, patients. So I don't think that this study is biased, that this means that only these people decided to talk to because they had bad experiences, for example, or stronger yeah. experiences, or they were... Actually, I would even say that the contrary maybe a lot of people didn't want to talk about this because it was such a stressful time in their yeah. lives or mm. they have a really bad experience with it which i would and it's imagine that maybe people wouldn't want to share yeah. that right i think a lot of people so feel I, stigmatized in this situation absolutely. they don't want to harp on it they don't want to keep dealing with it exactly so i think that the fact that this was like nine people they got to talk to doesn't mean that the rest had it better in our yeah. sense so i think this lack of communication these struggles into dealing with the patient's emotions is something that is widespread and it needs to be changed mm-hmm. but let's go ahead and move on to our next article. So now we actually are going to talk about a very interesting review published in Cell and Host Microbe. The title is Non-Traditional Antibacterial Therapeutic Options and Challenges. And this is a very in-depth review yeah. that doesn't really cover all these non-traditional or this alternative to antibiotics, mm-hmm. but it focuses in a specific set of them, especially the ones that might have a potential to actually come into the market mm-hmm. to help antibiotic treatment. And this article was published on July 10th of this year. So this was kind of a hard article to approach, I thought, because it's so dense and so much so information. Dense. But it's really useful if you're trying to find sources of more information about this. I mean, this is a really great place to start, I thought. But they go through, I mean, they kind of group this into sections. Yeah, so they don't talk about vaccines, which would be a way to prevent, yeah. you know, like infection prevention and, yeah. if it will prevent the use of yeah. uh, antibiotics. But they actually talk about maybe different strategies of how we can actually deal with infections and mm-hmm. reduce the amount of the infections and also even 
treating infections yeah. that are already happening. So yeah, they do um, separate it into main sections. One would be actually ways of targeting virulence, right? Mm-hmm. Virulence would, is actually a critical step to produce an infection. Yeah. So if you can actually target toxin production, if you can target virulence factor secretion, if you can target bacterial adhesion, that means how the bacteria actually attaches to the part that it's going to yeah. infect. If you can treat biofilm formation, so biofilm like these communities of bacteria that are kind of resilient to antibiotic yeah. treatment as well. So if you can avoid that the production of these biofilms, that's another way. Also, if you can target bacterial communication, right? Mm-hmm. Because bacteria are able by chemicals to talk to each other yeah. uh, when there's an infection setting to produce those virulence factors and those molecules that mm-hmm. are needed to produce an infection. After they need to reach like a certain amount of number yeah. or density. So if you are able to target these things, and we talked about this with Frederick Ambris because yeah. he works with virulence mm-hmm. and adhesions. And also they talk about microbiome modifying therapy, mm-hmm. which, you know, the microbiome and the gut flora is a very important component of your immune system. So if you are able to prevent infections by having a strong flora and a strong microbiome, yeah. that would be a way to prevent mm-hmm. infections. And actually, all of you at home probably have heard of probiotic, yeah. right? So these are bacteria that you are able to take that will strengthen your flora and that yeah. will actually maybe prevent the bad bacteria to take yeah. over. And I think it's become more popular for people to hear about uh, fecal transplants. Yeah. It's kind of in the news sometimes. Fecal matter transplants, yeah, yes. Matter and transplants. they do talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah. How it's actually very difficult to control, yes. but it has shown really good results. Yeah. And that's right? something that's come up recently. I think the FDA put out a warning that it can be very hard to control if you spread resistant bacteria. Speaking of the CPE article we were talking about exactly. before, you can spread things from carriers that don't show any symptoms that can cause severe disease. Mm. But it also had a lot of success. But I think that kind of ties into this article's the great things they talk about they talk about the possibilities as well as the challenges there are a lot of them <laughs> there's a lot of challenges yeah there. because uh, we have one thing that we need to know we've been working with bringing antibiotics into the market for a really long time yeah. and things are very streamlined there mm-hmm. are very clear settings of how they should actually be studied how do we test if they work or don't work yeah. how do we manufacture them and produce them how do we bring them into the market mm-hmm. how do we do clinical testing and a lot of these very established ways do not apply to these non-traditional therapeutics, right? They are smaller molecules. We don't really, for for example, one that I think it's very obvious, we know antibiotics, the way that chemically they behave inside the body has been thoroughly understood and studied, this pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. But when you actually want to do the same thing for other type of molecules or other type Mm -hmm. of phages, which are much bigger than antibiotics or nanoparticles, then it changes, right? We don't really have a references. don't apply here. We don't have like a standard set, a protocol of you do no. this test, this test, this test, and then we see what happens. Yeah, like the same with the these. standard gold test, which is the minimum inhibitory concentration, yeah. right? That you are able to test what is the minimum amount of this antibiotic that you need to use to inhibit the growth mm-hmm. of bacteria. With that, you are already assuming that there is growth involved. Exactly. And in a lot of these new approaches, there is no growth involved. Yeah. It's more about preventing or it's more about avoiding this attachment. How exactly. do you translate it into first an animal model of course but then on a patient setting it's Mm -hmm. much more difficult to understand and another problem is also these therapeutics sometimes they are not designed or thought to act on their own so you actually will use them together with an antibiotic so how do you separate the effect of these two things when Mm -hmm. you are actually testing them on patients that's also very tricky exactly I mean for example with the phages you're talking about whether or not viruses are alive is contested but there are things that modify themselves I mean and the cells become resistant and that's something that we can 
predict and this is all this does not fit in the way that we produce drugs at no, all. no 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 so so it's not only the challenge of kind of developing these new therapeutics by themselves but also we need to be working on ways to test them way mm-hmm. to produce them way to analyze them parallel with the development of them yeah not to minimize the importance of these new no of course options, not but, but yeah. I think that the authors well we assume by default that you at home are not going to be able to have access to it so we just wanted to talk a little bit more about it and the authors in the discussion they actually make a really good point of summarizing what are the shared challenges of all these alternative or these mm-hmm. non-traditional therapeutics for bacterial infections they talk for example about a lot of these therapeutics they actually don't act directly to the bacterial growth yeah. as we were saying they have an indirect acting strategy that involves a lot of complex biological processes which mm-hmm. we don't really know a lot about and if we don't understand every little component of it it's very difficult to work with it yeah. then that we need to develop alternative in vitro tests that mm-hmm. will be able to assess these therapeutics because the ones that we've been using for antibiotics simply don't apply that there is an immense challenge of late stage clinical trial that's very important Absolutely. if you are not able to to show that this therapeutic works in the patient mm-hmm. it's never going to get into the market no exactly so normally FDA the Food and Drug Administration used to be okay with for example new drugs new antibiotics to show a non-inferiority result in clinical studies that means mm-hmm. that it's not worse than anything that is already in the market but now they are actually changing into requesting or requiring superiority studies so that this shows that the experimental treatment is better than the standard of care that is already out yeah. there that poses even more challenge yeah. for this therapeutic and then they also talk about standardized and well-characterized production processes quality control good manufacturing practices very, how very are going to get there with these things. and then those findings with these changes in pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics how do we assess what is the right amount of this therapeutic to use right and yeah. all that needs to be put into the complex of the human body which, which is very has, complex has a lot very of individual <laughs> and then they also talk about another challenge which is that these different therapeutics tend to always be very specific and we talked yeah. about this when we presented the latest success of phage therapy that was mm-hmm. on episode 8 we talked about this uh, article that that explained the compassionate use of modified phages that actually was able to cure a patient but this is so specific we talk about yeah, it like phages designed basically for the patient yeah. and then other strategies like it could be antibodies will mm-hmm. also be super specific for this specific molecule that the bacteria is expressing yeah. if we are talking about gene deregulation or gene regulation where mm-hmm. you try to avoid expression then that's even more specific because it's a specific yeah. sequence of DNA for example with antisense RNAs which mm-hmm. are small RNA molecules that are supposed to go inside the cell and block the expression of a specific gene yeah. we are talking of such a specific mm-hmm. thing that this is really the most narrow spectrum of all chemicals yeah. that we can find right we talk about antibiotics that are broad spectrum narrow spectrum depending on how many different bacterial species they can treat this yeah. we're not this talking even species to... this is coming down to this specific strain of yeah. bacteria and that to me is one of the biggest challenges mm-hmm. because if you need to rely on that specificity you need to have extremely sensitive diagnostic that yeah. will be able to tell you super quick what type of strain the patient has super quick, and we super are not sensitive there and reasonably priced and that's just not, we are not, not where we're at we are not, not yet <laughs> and we are not even there for antibiotics that are already in the market exactly. let alone for possible chemicals yeah. or drugs that will actually come into the market well they do also mention that I mean there's different kinds of infections of course so there are like really chronic infections that you can kind of you can really test what does this patient have it's not going to kill them tomorrow 
tomorrow is a kind of heartless way of putting it, but it is, we have time so. to figure out exactly what's the problem. But if it's, you know, a sepsis infection and you, you don't even have time to figure out what the bacteria is, you just throw everything by the kitchen sink at it, basically, mm. at some point. Yeah. It's a really... But it's very good that uh, people take the time to actually summarize all these, put yeah. it together, because there is a lot of things. They also, through the paper, talk about which ones are in late clinical stage yeah. or phase one, phase two. So there's a lot of valuable mm. information here. And I'm sure that some of them will get to a point that they can be used, either in combination with already antibiotics, yeah. as prevention, which I see it maybe even more than actual treatment, like mm-hmm. if you can actually prevent the infection to happen. Or treatment with existing antibiotics. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so I mean, I, it's too bad this is under a paywall because I think this is a really great thorough review for anybody that wants more information on it. But we're going to leave the link it. anyway. Yeah. So if, if you you're can, lucky enough to have access, yes. use it. <laughs> so really check it out. And yeah, we're very happy that we got to talk about it. Yeah. And then just kind of like a quick note about something that just happened like a week ago. Yeah. That is very exciting and very mm-hmm. cool. Ties into a lot of things we've talked about before. Yes, which is that a new tuberculosis drug has been approved now after 50 years from the last one mm-hmm. of a new type of drug to treat tuberculosis. And this new drug is called Pretomanid. It was developed by a nonprofit, the TB Alliance, which is something that we've talked about before, is this new way of developing new drugs. And it's being produced in combination with two other drugs. So it's going to be a combination therapy and they're working on getting it approved in Europe as well. Right now it's approved in the U.S. and going to be used in other countries around the world that struggle with extensively drug-resistant TB Yeah, so XDR-TB. So this exactly. this new therapy, which co- it's made of two drugs that were already existing, and this new drug is supposed to target this extensively drug-resistant TB. The results so far have shown that nearly 90% of all the patients that receive this medication actually recover after six months of the treatment, mm-hmm. which they say is almost three times as the success rate of the current treatment options. So this is going to be a game changer, I would say, for XDR-TB treatment, which is very needed because, as we have mentioned before, TB is one of the bacterial infections that kills the most amount of people in the world. People forget that this is still a very very big big issue. And it's just, it's really nice to see one of these NGO-developed drugs really going through. And it's it's licensed to a private company, I believe. And it just shows that this can happen. This can be a success. It shows that it can work, right? That uh, the the non-for-profit organizations can take up on the early on parts of it and then of course maybe the later as we mm-hmm. talked before the licensing and the bringing it to the market can be done by private companies but the heavy work of bringing it to be it's mm-hmm. been already done right yeah but this really is something that we can work on with other yeah infections as well right so with this we say bye for this month to you and yeah. we hope to see you back here at the beginning of October if you have any ideas as we said previously if you want to communicate with us about the future of the AMR studio what are you learning with us and what would you like to hear about just shoot us an email or mm-hmm. um, tweet or any any way you want to connect with us you're gonna find a way so thank you so much see you next month bye bye and a very very quick last minute note uh, we at the Uppsala Antibiotic Center are now uh, working and organizing a hackathon for December from 13th to 15th of December together with the Joint Programming Initiative on Antimicrobial Resistance, the Swedish Research Council and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. And this hackathon has the title Hacking AMR 2019, Using the Digital World to Fight Antimicrobial Resistance. And we are looking for scientists, designers, patients, developers, innovators, 
educators, students, and entrepreneurs that look for collaborations and are interested in looking for digital solutions to the antimicrobial resistance problem. So if you want to participate in a fast-paced, intense, challenging, and fun event, join us. More information can be found at bit.ly slash hackingamr19. That is B-I-T dot L-Y slash hackingamr19. Thank you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nys for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes. <laughs>